as we take a look at the book of James. We're only going to take only the first four verses of James because I think that's all I'm going to be able to keep within the time frame today. Because this is my favorite book. And if it's my favorite book, that means I can spend a lot of time in the word of this favorite book of mine. I hope it actually becomes your favorite book as well by the time we go through the journey of this book. Don't know how long it's going to take us, but if we're only doing four verses at a time, who's in a rush, right? Especially this book. Because what we're going to find some of the key points as an introduction here to this book is that there's some key things or distinctions about each and every book of the 66 books in the Bible. But this one in particular, because it has a Jewish flavor and nature to it, as we will see, because many of the words that the writer James uses is around the Jewish flavor or specifics of the epistle, and he uses lots of phrasing to, uh, that makes it unmistakably Jewish in nature, but with an emphasis, um, the action around a faith in Jesus Christ. It's a very practical book, and it's why it's for a mature Christian, it's one of the most challenging books because it will cause you, if you think you've arrived and you know what the word is, you know who God is, you have this relationship, it will challenge you because it's so practical at nature that it will cause you to say, oh, you're spiritually mature, are you? Well, then, how is that demonstrated? Can we, can we kind of, let's like examine that a little bit. Let's see what you're doing for Christ if you really are a spiritually mature. And it will challenge each and every one of us, I assure you. He uses simple language in this epistle. And it obviously is very familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because there's a lot of parallels with that part of the passage. His letter reads similar to the Old Testament wisdom writings that we see in the book of Proverbs. It's the same kind of cadence and same kind of structure that we do. And the men on Thursday night are studying Proverbs, so many of the men who come will see that pattern. James also has an emphasis on works. We see that certainly highlighted in James chapter 2, verse 24. And throughout the letter, James emphasized the importance of Christian maturity. And that's what I hope the book will do, is it will cause you to no longer be a child in the faith, but desire to grow and mature in their, your spiritual walk and to do what God's called you to do as a child of God. And throughout the letter, James emphasizes this maturity, but James is not a doctrinal book as much as a practical book for seasoned believers. So you can understand that the overall theme of this book is spiritual maturity. It describes the traits, the many traits of a mature believer. And it will always challenge you, especially when someone says they, they believe they're a mature believer. And then they start reading James and you finally realize, no, I'm just a Christian in name only. Or I'm a still a babe and I just only want milk because I can't handle anything more beyond the basics of Christianity. This book will challenge you, and I, and I just ask you, keep showing up regardless of how you feel. Don't allow your feelings to dictate what God has for you as we gather together here in his name week after week. That will be your biggest challenge. 
The chapter 1 is broken into two parts. We see chapter 1 verses 1 through 12 is how we face trials that come to us from the outside. Because we will see trials in our Christian life. Many times people think once you become a Christian, everything gets great and peaceful and loving and perfect and every, nothing happens wrong. We're just wealthy and healthy and wise and oh, it's just perfect life. Uh, that's not true. It's not biblical. We do face trials in our lives as humans. We also see in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 27, how we face temptations on the inside. So there's things that will attack us from the outside, and things will attack us from the inside, and we need to learn how to mature spiritually to deal with those trials and temptations, those tests that are allowed to come into our lives as a Christian. And through faith in Christ, we can experience victory. Victory over these tests, victories over these temptations. You do not have to be living in defeat day in and day out, week in, week out. You do not have to even try to justify. This is the way I am because this is the way I I am because of the situation and my environment and this and that. And you can find all kinds of reasons and excuses to justify why you're not moving on and spiritually maturing. And the book of James will challenge you to do that. Because you can blame someone in your life all you want. That doesn't justify you not maturing in your faith. And the result of, that vict- of this victory is spiritual maturity when you come through and understand how to face these trials, these tests, these temptations. So we start here in James chapter 1 verse 1. And we see the writer starts off by putting his name right up front. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So right up front, we know, and it's a great way of writing a letter. It tells you exactly who is writing it. It tells you exactly who he's writing it to. And he's, you know, it's just pretty straightforward for us to understand that. But as we take a look at many times, people will, like, which James? There's a few James that are in the Bible. Which James is this? Well, there are several men named James, certainly in the New Testament, but reliable traditions and assigning of, of all these James and what, is, what we know historically, but also scripturally, what happened to them, there's really one conclusion for me and for most 99% probably of those who study the word. No, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so we see that in this historical, like Josephus and others, he's referred to as James the Just, the son of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Jesus in Matthew 13.55. We also see that he's the, that makes him the brother of Jude, Jude 1, who led the church in Jerusalem when he finally clicked and understood, wow, my brother, my big brother was God in the flesh. I'm sitting over the breakfast table with him all my life. That's an interesting little... Beal moment, wouldn't it? 
Ponder on that for a while. You're James. You're second oldest. And your older brother is God in the flesh. And we know historically in the writings, Jesus was a little quirky, a little different. He would be what we would classify as truly mama's boy. Right? The perfect little boy who did nothing wrong, never had a mean streak, a critical spirit at all in his life. Wouldn't that drive you nuts as a brother and a sister? Because we know he's had a few more brothers and we know he had a few sisters. We see that in the scripture. Regardless of the teaching of some Church that says Mary never had children after, you know, just not, it's not scriptural. I mean, it's very clear and plain. But think about that, pondering on that. Well, let's, let's talk about these other James to so get that off your, your list there if you're wondering who the James is. Other James mentioned in the Bible includes James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, you remember? The first apostle martyred. And also known as James the Last. We see that in Matthew 10 and Mark 15 and Acts 12. And he died before this could have been written or have, have taken place. He was martyred. So it can't be, you know, James the brother of John and son of Zebedee. We also see James the son of Alphaeus, another of the 12 disciples in Matthew 10.3. We see James the father of the other apostle, Judas, not Iscariot. We see that in Luke chapter 6, verse 16. But the James here who wrote this letter also received special resurrection appearance of Jesus noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And this was probably the cause of his brother James to finally click. That it was just before he was on the cross or he was at the, at the fact that after the conversion. Because up to that time, after that resurrection, we see now James, his half-brother, is now becomes the one of the key leaders in the church. He ran the council in Jerusalem there uh, at the church. Now... Because of that time, the brothers of Jesus seemed un, very unsupportive, if you remember. In the John chapter 7, verse 5, uh, we see that they were very unsupportive of his message and mission and the things he talked about around the dinner table. Like, these are the things that he knew what his father had him to do and why he didn't do what the rest of the kids do and his brothers and sisters did, but why he seemed to always have his own path that he was always on always seemed to be different than everybody else and he was he couldn't wait remember the whole scenario where mom and dad have to go back and find Jesus at the temple can you imagine the conversation if you're James and, and Jude and they're where'd brother go now what is he doing now he's doing his own thing find out that he's out there teaching the religious leaders in the temple I mean can you imagine the conversations on the way home Amazing. No doubt Jesus' siblings had a very hard time getting a handle on him. Because from the gospel account, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe him until after his resurrection. You know, I always ponder it because, you know, you look at the disciples. They lived and ate and 
slept in the same, I mean, they were with him for three years. And it didn't click for them. They had knowledge. They had experiences. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle, but that didn't change their life. It had a lot more pressures, a lot more questions, a lot more things going on. But it wasn't until that resurrection, that death and resurrection, that changed their lives. Now, they only had three years with him. But James was with, with Jesus for about 25 years of knowledge, right? I mean, he may not have known Jesus in his first four or five years, but somewhere around age five and <laughs> the next 25 years until his ministry started at 30 to 33 time frame, they were with him 24-7. And they couldn't get their head around the fact that this was the Messiah. That this was the, this, he was the Messiah. Now, that kind of gives me hope. It should give you hope in your walk as a Christian because you're like, I don't know if I get this. I don't know if I truly understand this. Who Jesus is, what does it mean to have and be fallen in love with Jesus and follow Jesus and all these Christian terminologies many times or even biblical scripture and terminology. You just struggle with it because you're so focused on what's around you in the world and what you can touch and feel. And it's all now, today, it's all about feelings and, and it's just driving people crazy and anxious and fearful and all these things because they're not able to grip and get a hold of the even the physical things things that are going on because things are changing so rapidly. And now you're asking me to put a faith in someone I do not see and touch and feel. Now ponder on that a little bit. That means that faith must come from God to give you the ability to believe. And the strength and the ability to actually move forward in your life based on that relationship with God. And to live by faith and not by sight is by God's grace. The fact that God is just working in people's lives, and every one of us have a different story. For James, it was 25 years plus until he understood the fact that, remember when he was sitting there, was teaching, and someone, one of the disciples came and said, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers and sisters are outside. He says, who's my brothers and sisters? But those, what? Who believe and follow me. So even his brothers, his blood brothers and sisters, was not as close as those who had believed and was following him. Do you see how important this fellowship is of brothers, of, of brothers who come, and sisters who come together? Because they're the spirit of God that lives in you and me are the, is, is the same spirit. And we unite us much closer than even blood.
If that is true for Jesus, why would that not be true for us? The spiritual bond between brothers and sisters, together with our Lord. But when he did follow Jesus, when James finally, it clicked, and his brothers and sisters, when it clicked, that this, who we've been listening to and watching our whole life, is the Messiah. It wasn't just in, oh, wow. Well, me, you know. Whoa, how could I miss this one? No. It was a changed life. And from that point on, his life was different. If you're born again, you know that your life changed and it's different. That's why you know you've been regenerated, born again. You think different, you act different, you choose and want to do things completely opposite, go from darkness to light. For James, it was an absolute, complete devotion to Jesus. Matter of fact, historians find Josephus especially, James became such a prayer warrior, he would sit and pray for eight to ten hours a day. His knees were so messed up being on his knees all the time. It was almost like they so historically, they're like camel knees. They were calloused over because he was on his knees for so long, seeking and praying and, and talking to God. He was such a man of prayer. He was also James, who was the one martyred in Jerusalem because he was being and having conversation with religious leaders and we find that they pushed him from the high point of the temple and when he fell from the highest point of the temple, he did not die, but then they turned around and the mob beat him with clubs and killed him at the base of that temple wall. Beaten to death by his attackers. Why? Because he loved Jesus, his, his Savior. But notice in the scripture here, he says, James, a bondservant of God, a, and the Lord, uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are two key words, bondservant and Lord, because he identifies himself as who he is and how he sees himself. And that is, I'm a bondservant. I, that word means slave. It means I have dedicated my life to serving my Lord. And it's a willingness. It's not a force to. I don't, I don't have to. In those days, if you, were, um, if you were indebted to someone, you didn't get to go to the bank and borrow some money and, that you didn't have from someone you shouldn't have been given it to. You to give it to someone to try to... No, no. You had to pay back what you owe and you had to serve. After seven years, you could not be, continue to be a slave. You had to then be set free at seven years. Then you could be set off and go because you've fulfilled the contract. You fulfilled your position of paying off the debt. But you can make a decision because you could find that your master, your Lord, who you serve, your employee, or maybe you could put it that way, it was such a great 
master, a great person who you served, you didn't want to leave. And then you could become a bondservant where you would then identify yourself, I'm willing to continue to serve you as my master. So James is saying, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I am a willing slave. I'm a willing to do whatever my Lord wants me to do. And that's why he says, I, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means absolutely in control. The problem with many Christians today is, oh, I want a Savior, but I don't want a Lord. Because if he's your Lord, then you will do whatever he's called you to do, wherever it is he is calling you to. And I guarantee you, it will, cha- it will test you. It will challenge you. You might be asked to have to go from California to New York to start a new work. You'll be tested. But, but think about this. If you were James, if you, if you have... The, uh, you're a bondservant, you're a doulos, you're, that's the, the Greek, ancient Greek word for bondservant, a slave, a bondservant, one who is in a permanent relationship with, of servitude to another. And you see Kyros, the Lord, master of the doulos. That is how James is identifying himself. Now for me, maybe not you, but somewhere on that identification when I come and introduce myself as, yeah, okay, bondservant. Yes, Lord, my Lord Jesus Christ. But somewhere in that conversation, I'm going to say, but I'm, I'm half-brother of Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm blood, man. You know, I'm, I'm connected with this man. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't use the fact that he was actually part of the family, part of the blood family, same mother, different father. He didn't use that. Because he understood Jesus was the Messiah. God Almighty in the flesh. And then all of a sudden you can, you can see it. Remember ever happened where you're just going along and you got this relationship with people and everything's fine. It's like, yeah, they're a little quirky and no, oh, that makes interesting. And you know, why do they say that? And you kind of go along, but all of a sudden, boom. Something happens, some situation happens, and you get some clarity of actually who the person you are talking to, and all of a sudden, what happens? That totally makes sense why they do what they do. That is why, that's who they are. I didn't know that. And it's like, wait a minute, you've been knowing this person for three or four, five, six years. I know, but I really didn't know. See, a lot of Christians know of Jesus but they don't really know Jesus personally Satan knows who Jesus is but he doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus he hasn't surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord and as Messiah and he writes this letter to the 12 tribes What James 
means by the 12 tribes is sometimes difficult for some people to completely understand. I don't find it difficult. I think it's pretty straightforward what the scripture talks about here, of why he says the 12 tribes and what it refers to. Um, questions whether James wrote a letter to only Christians from a Jewish background or to all Christians. Well, if you know when this letter was written, more than likely this is one of the very first epistles of all the Bible that we, it's been written. We see that this is dated somewhere around A.D. 44 to 50, about 10 to 15 years um, right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's relatively new, and by that time, the Gentile world and, and everything else it hadn't spread that far. So more than likely, I believe, he was really writing to these Jewish believers. And he was writing to that because, again, the letter is very Jewish in nature. So that's who his audience is writing to, to minister by the Holy Spirit through him in writing of this letter. And so James wrote his letter before the Gentiles were brought into the church, or at least before Gentile Christians appeared in any significant Number. So the 12 tribes is a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes refers to the Jewish people as a whole. How do I know that? In Matthew 19, verse 28. We also see in the epistles, again, to, to, to support this, is that Paul even references the 12 tribes in his speech before King Agrippa, Acts 26, 7. And we see the fact that these 12 tribes among the Jewish people were still very strong, even though they had not lived in the tribal allotments for centuries. It was still recognized of the 12 tribes. Galatians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul describes some of the first century apostles as the apostleship to the circumcised. Saying that their ministry mainly to the lost sheep of Israel, even as Jesus mentioned in Matthew 10.6 and Matthew 15.24. So I see this and I look at this and I go, it makes sense to me who he's writing to. Because a key point here is at the end of that verse, it said, is that which are scattered abroad. Remember, the Jewish people have been scattered four times. In their history, they've been taken over and caused them to scatter. And when the next enemy comes in, they rebuild back up in Jerusalem. And then the enemy comes in and causes challenges and, and trials, and they scatter. And the last time they scattered was when? 70 AD. When the temple was destroyed. And still today, Jewish people are all over the world. But what does the end time say about Jewish people? That he's going to start what? Bringing them back to where? Jerusalem. Where, how do you think that's going to happen? Ask the German, the German population, the Nazi situation. Caused many of the Jews to flee. Look at what we're seeing in the war today in, in Ukraine. Look at the stories, if you're tracking, how many Jews are fleeing back to Jerusalem. All over, we will see God bringing back the Jews to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Bible says he's going to do it. 
And when you see these things, look up. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Regardless if you believe it or not, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter to you, to me. You can have that feeling that that's not going to happen. I, 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 I trust what the scripture tells me than your feelings. I trust what the word God and not some talking head or some commentary you've been reading. I put my trust in what the scripture says. My life is based on a relationship with God, not with anybody else. I hope yours is as well. Because if it is, you'll stabilize in your feelings and emotions and turmoils because trials are coming, my brothers and sisters. They're going to be coming in such a fast pace and such intensity that you and I, our heads will spin if you're not grounded on the word of God. But they're scattered. There's only, this word scattered here is only occurs in two other places in the New Testament. John chapter 7 verse 35 and 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And at both of those times that word is used, it's always used in the same context. And that is referring to believing Jews who were scattered or seed sown by God throughout the world. Among the Gentiles. And it's always been through persecution, through trials. In many ways, we listen to the book of James because it echoes the teaching of Jesus. There are 15 references to the Sermon on the Mount alone. This person, James, his half-brother, been listening and watching what his brother was doing during his ministry. And finally, we see greetings. This is interesting because a salutation greetings was a customary Greek term. It was a way you opened up a letter in a traditional way. And this word greetings means rejoice or joy in the same word. It means this Greek word is a typical one. And, but Paul never used greetings in any of his epistles. His was always grace and peace. But James used here the customary uh, salutation in the Greek. Now as we continue here in verse 2, we are going to see James gives you and I some direct guidance. This is not, uh, he, he's, he's a direct, he's very practical. Like I said, it's going to kind of hit you. But he's going to show us some direct things that we must obey. He doesn't sit there and say, Ponder on them, and if you feel like doing them, this is what you need to do. No, he's saying to them, understand, understand, my brothers and sisters, there's going to be trials coming your way, both internal and external called temptation, and these things are coming your way. And how you deal with those, I'm going to give you the, the actual solution. I'm going to give you the solution, the key to understand how to deal with trials that are coming in and tests that will be allowed to come into your life as a Christian. Look at what he says here. We're going to take three of them today, not the fourth one, but we're going to take three of them. The first one is going to be called count. Verse, verse three, we're going to see the word count. The second one is no. We under, we're going to see that in verse three. And the third one is let. 
These are, uh, it, it's, it's, let, it's in verse 4, it's also in verses 9 through 11, and the word ask in verses 5 through 8. These four words are very, very important because they're present imperatives. And when you see an imperative, that means it's not an option, it must be obeyed, it must be done, it must do, not just here, but do these things. Let's look at the very first one, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. <laughs> this is a very common verse. People will quote these verse, but do you understand the verse? Many times you're off sometimes. We get off on what that understanding is. But he says the very first imperative was my brethren. So he's talking to believers here. He's not talking to non-believers so this does not apply. You cannot sit there with your, your friend at work who you really, really wanted them to get saved and then you turn around and they're having a major trial and you say, but, but my butt, bud, dude, my, my, my comrade here, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and tests, man. That doesn't apply to them. You understand? That doesn't apply to them. They're going to look like you're, like you're crazy. And I'll tell you, you're crazy if you say that to them. Because it doesn't apply. There's no possible way they can count it all joy as a non-believer. They have no capacity. They have no spirit living within them to handle this trial. Why do you think non-believers or immature Christians turn to the things of the flesh and the world to try to compensate for dealing with trials and tests in their life? Because they don't have the, the maturity, spiritual maturity, to, to handle it. So when they think they're going squirrely, they look for world solutions and ideas of why their feeling and thoughts are going crazy. And uh, they, they don't know where to turn to. And I'm telling you, turn to Jesus. Because he can help you. So we see the writer says, count it all joy. Why? Because... James regarded trials as an inevitable. It's going to happen. There's no question it's going to happen in your life. He says, when you fall into various trials, not, not just if, but when, because <laughs> you will have them. I, I, there's some, there's some uh, preachers out there, I would like to have them tell me what that means to them when they say when, and versus, oh, you'll never experience these if you really have true faith. No. It drives me crazy when I hear these because the scripture is very clear. We're all going to have trials. We're always going to have these challenges. The word trial here is very clear. It means significant affliction, persecution, tests of any kind. That's what it means. So understand what God will send or allow as a trial or test in your life as a believer. It is to strengthen our faith. That is why he allows it into our, that trial to touch our lives. It's to strengthen our faith. Satan will seek to utilize it to get us to sin based on that. But God uses it to strengthen our faith in him. It is our trust in him and turn to him. The other side of the coin that we see here is that Satan throws our way as temptations. God has it coming across as a trial, a test to us, but Satan comes across as a temptation. It's a, your same life. God allows to be a trial 
in your life. Satan wants to use every event and circumstance he can to tear us down and wipe us out. But God wants to use that same event, that same circumstance in your life to show how faithful he is and how real he is in your life. And he shows up, and he'll reveal himself to you. In the book of Job, we see, the, you know the story, right? Satan tried to wipe out Job out of everything, physically, family, financially, just take you out. But God was approving and very proving of something very clear And that is God was showing how faithful he would be in Job's life through it all. We may not be able to get our head around why God allowed it, why he would do those things. But God is sovereign. God knows all things. And look how the book of Job and how Job has ministered to millions upon millions of what God allowed in his life. Our outlook determines our outcome. Our attitude determines action. Our attitude's wrong, our actions will be wrong. Our outlook on what is going on, what God is doing through this trial in our lives, if we don't have that settled right and understand how God is in control, the outcome will not be good. Jesus warned his disciples in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. Will you experience tribulation? Say yes. 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 So don't be shocked. I'm always shocked when I have a tribulation. Like, what is happening? What did I do? You know, it's the first natural reaction. Is what did I do? What's happening? What's going on? But you ground yourself quickly, Lord. You're allowing this to happen. Oh, if this test is coming, please. Please let me learn this very quickly. And so I do not have to repeat this test, Lord, if this is what you're trying to teach me something. Are you with me? I don't want to have to have to do it two or three times to learn this thing. Just get your mind focused on him. Say, Lord, why is this test, this trial coming? Help me to trust you even when I do not see how this is all going to play out. I just know you're in control. And I know whatever it is is good and it's going to come out. I just know I go back to what I do know. And then I have a good, good father. And I have a savior who saved me and has forgiven me. And I go back to things. When, I, when you see that trial come in our lives, and they will come. Sickness will come. Bad weather will come. Accidents will come. Loss of jobs will come. Disappointments will come. Tragedies will come. These are natural things of trials that are happening in every single one of our lives. That doesn't do anything other than, as a believer, should drive you to the foot of Jesus. And the understanding of who God is by the what is based on the scriptures to help you bring you through that trial. And you're at guards at all times because Satan and the demonic forces are going to be right there to tempt you at the same time. It will happen. We've all experienced those things. 
especially when you've made a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus in a deeper level. Watch out. Boom. Your, test, your faith will be tested. Temptation will come. I want to know Jesus at a deeper level. I want to change. I want to follow. I, I, I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to serve and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to vacuum the, the, the floors at the church. No big deal. I'm just going to do a little something. Watch out. Your faith, your faithfulness to vacuum those floors will be tested. And Satan, as a temptation, will come after you and try to wipe you out. Wipe you up on that floor that you've been trying to vacuum. I always, it's funny when, with the guys, I always laugh. It's, it's kind, of his, kind of a chuckle, because I've been there, done it, right? God says, I'm going to do this for God, and I've, I've done, and fill in the blank. I'm trying to be very broad, but uh, I, I can fix that at church. I've done it millions of times. Don't worry about it, Pastor. <laughs> and I start laughing because it's only going to take 15 minutes, Pastor, and three days later, they're still doing it because they're going to be tested because we can do nothing apart from him. And then Satan just whoops right in and says, look at what you did. You thought you were pretty proud, weren't you? 15 minutes to get that taken care of for the pastor. Now, look what else all happened. Oh, look at what he's thinking about you. Oh, look what everyone else is looking and thinking about. And then all of a sudden, you get in your head thinking people think about things. They're not thinking about anything. All they're saying is, like, thank God someone is doing it. That's <laughs> all that matters. But Satan will swoop right in there and get you to think things that people are not thinking about. Isn't that how it's so true? And we have to fight through those emotions that are just not true. We're thankful anyone wants to serve, and everyone then the same Susan says, no one really cares about you. No one notices anything. That's not true. We're thankful and grateful that we're all getting to serve God together by the grace of God. And that you're loved. And you're loved. Oh, my brother and my sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice the word various. <laughs> it's never the same. And it's not like you're looking for anything. You're not looking for a trial. It says right here, you're going to fall into it. You're going to be walking along, minding your own business, and you're going to fall into situations. Every time I travel, Lord, please keep the deer away. Please keep the crazy, crazy ones on the cars. Please, the uh, semis. Lord, please. I love them all. Just keep them away from me. You know, it's pretty simple. You know, because you know, I don't want to have that trial. And so I just, let the, I just have a conversation with the Lord already about it. And when you travel so much, you can see the high risk of <laughs> falling into the next accident in front of you. Or the big, very black, thick, heavy rubber coming off the semi in front of you and comes right towards you. That's happened a few times toward me, and by God's grace, I had this sense of just moving lanes and getting out, and whoop, there it happened. Oh. 
account after account. See, Christians certainly do not want to manufacture your own trial. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to to make this point. Because sometimes I, I actually, <laughs> when you're in counseling and you're just sitting down and want to hear people's stories, sometimes you're like, you do realize you brought that upon yourself. You literally created that your own trial for yourself. You, you didn't have to you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to make that decision. You didn't have to go there. You didn't have to say those things, and you didn't have to think those things. You didn't have to do this. That you're manufacturing your own drama in your own life. Trust me. You will encounter your own trials and tests without having to create your own. And all the trials of life are not all alike. They will vary, and you will have to trust in God in each of those trials. You can't just sit there and say, oh, I've seen this one before. I'll just do the same thing I did before. You know, it's no big deal. A little prayer, a little worship, you know, it's like I whip up something that takes care of it. That's not how it works. God wants us to trust him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Regardless of how small the trial or how big the trial, you need him. And through the process, you're building up your faith. And what you think you'll learn in the scripture is, you'll, God, by God's grace, he only gives you little simple trials. And then as he builds up your spiritual maturity, those trials have a tendency to get more complex. Because he's trying to help you to sanctify you, to help you grow. But he always uses those moments and situations in your life for his glory and for his purpose and for the body of Christ. To be able to reach out and minister to others who are just now starting to go through these small trials and tribulations. And so we have to understand that is why we can have joy because we know God is in control. We know that he's using this for your good to build and, and strengthen our faith and, and help us to spiritually mature. We can count it joy. When we fall in, not if, but when we fall in these various trials, when we face trials of life, we must always evaluate it from the light of how God sees these things. Not the world, not how you feel, but from the light of what God says about these things and how he wants to use this in our life and through our life. That's why dedicated Christians can have joy or a joyful attitude. That's why it's count. That's the word count is to, to evaluate. That's the, that's the Greek word there. Evaluate. Evaluate your life in, in context, a biblical view of how God sees you and sees the situation. You must learn and practice these things because then you will have this joyful attitude even through the trials and tribulations that will come in your life. And if you don't practice those things, you're emotionally going to be like a roller coaster. 
You're going to be taking some sharp turns and highs and lows, and you can't handle it because you're not maturing and having the right attitude of understanding of what God is doing through this trial or testing of your faith. But once you get that in your head, once you understand that, once you mature around that, then you're less moved emotionally and even maybe physically. You're not so worked up anxiously about the things that are going on in your life. This explains why we have to understand that even our Lord was able to endure the cross at Calvary because of the joy that was set before him. We see that in Hebrews 12, verse 2 that we studied. What, is, what, what made that a joyful moment in regards to a joy that it was set before him? What was that? It was the joy of returning to heaven. It was the joy that one day sharing his glory with you and I, the church, of his resurrection. That's what is the joy that was set before him. Not the drinking of the, the he, in the, the garden of uh, Gethsemane. He drank, he understood, was going through the mental anguish of the fact that you were going to drink your cup of wrath, of your life. He was going to take it in. But once that happened, then the joy was set before him that he was willing to go through all this for why? Because he's going back to heaven. He's going to now bring this joy to you as a church body, as a believers. He's going to be able to impart that to you. That was his focus. Understand, our values determine our evaluations. Our values determine our evaluations of the situations and circumstances. If we value comfort more than character in your life, then trials will upset you. The most slightest of things will upset you. Because your character is not mature. And you will just turn just like that emotionally. Slight temperature. Slight weather change, and you come unglued. You must mature. You must grow and mature. You must, your character of who you are in Christ and stability has to de develop. And God wants to do that work through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the reading of the Word, and allowing you to not only hear the Word, but to apply it to your life so that your character will now not based on the comfort, but based on. A grounding and, and, and solidity of, of, of understanding of your life is in the palm of God's hands. If we value material or physical more than spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. You're not going to look at the evaluation because you're looking at what I'm going to lose materially or money-wise and, and, and comforts and positions and, and, and loss. and You're just looking at all of the material possessions and stuff of this trial versus looking at, no, 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 no. My life is in control by my, my master, my Lord. He's going to promise to provide for me. He's going to protect me. He's in absolute control of my life. And nothing will touch my life unless it's been father filtered first. 
And so God, you're going to allow me to go through this trial and tribulation because you're building my faith in you and you alone and not the material things of this world, not my possessions, not my bank account, not my investments, not this, not that. It is purely on you. And he's going to help you get there. Because that's the sovereign work of sanctification that he's doing in and through you. And it can only be done through trials. Look at verse 3. Knowing. This is second imperative. Knowing. To know. That the testing of your faith produces patience. How does God give you the endurance to live this life as a Christian? To have patience, that's what the word is there. Patience means endurance. Is through testing of your faith by trials. It's important you understand this because we can count it all joy in the midst of trials when we know God is at work to produce patience or endurance. It's an understanding of the mind. Not only do you have this, this evaluation, but that evaluation is based upon the understanding in your mind that God is using this to refine you. Man, this trial is tough. God, you're really stretching my faith and building my faith on this one. Woo! But praise you, God, because I know you've got, obviously, a big plan for me. Faith is always tested through trials, not produced by trials. Let me say that again. Faith is always tested through trials, not produced by trials. Trials reveal what faith we do have or we don't have. It's just a, it's just a test to see where you're at in your faith. Not because God doesn't know how much faith we have. He's not testing your faith to see how much faith you have. He's testing our faith so that we can evaluate, account how much faith we have. He's just bringing it to light to us how and where we are in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when the trials come, he's just saying... How much faith do you have? Woo! I thought I had faith until that trial came along, and now I'm not sure where I'm at. Have you been there? Yeah, we've all been there, done that, haven't we? We notice that if it is faith that is tested, and it shows that faith is very important and very precious. Why? Because God only tests things that are precious. He, the precious things are tested so thoroughly because of such tremendous value and importance. Faith is a vital, as vital as to salvation as the heart is to the vitalness of the body. Why do you think 
There's so much attacks, fiery darts that are thrown by the enemy at this point in your life of faith. Oh, you don't have faith. Who do you think you are to go take a step of faith and go do this for God? Are you kidding me? You know who you are. They're all going to find out about you, and they're all going to know about you, and, and it's, it's going to come because it, the enemy wants to stop you from doing something for God. If trials do not produce faith, what does produce faith? Do you know? Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're here today hearing the word to build up your faith. And as you continue to come and as you're listening and as you will apply and practice in your life throughout the time, your, that faith will be tested to see if you actually learned and listened and applied. That's how it works. And when God called Abraham to live by faith, what did God then do once he said yes? He tested him in order to increase his faith. And you study the life of Abraham and you'll see the test after test after. Was he perfect? Did he solve it? No. Sometimes he rushed way too quickly based on feelings and he had a relationship with Hagar. And look at the still ramifications from that. The testing of our faith proves that we are truly born again. Oh, let me say that one again. The testing of your faith is actually proof that you're born again. Let that sink in for a while. Not only faith is always tested through trials, not produced by trials, but testing works for us and not against us. James did not want anyone to think that God sends trials to break down or destroy your faith. And he'll expound on this when we get to verse 13 through 18. But it produces, he says here, patience. It's hupomone. It's the Greek word for patience. And it's a word that does not describe a passive waiting, but an active endurance it brings endurance in your walk as a Christian, a faith, a base of endurance to continue to walk for him according to his ways. And it's this hupomone. It is not one that sits there and goes, give me patience. I'm going to the doctor's office and I need to sit in the waiting room and I need the patience. That's not the patience it's talking about here, even though it will test your patience. But it's a, the patience it's talking about is one of endurance to be able to finish the marathon race. That is the word that we're talking about, hupomone. You ever said the moment, I don't know if I can continue? You know you're being tested. I don't know if I can continue to do this. You're being tested. I'm not sure where I'm going to get the strength to continue. To, you're being tested. Who are you turning to to get that strength to continue? In yourself? Your self-help book? Blogger? Family? Oh, please. 
Get on your knees and go to Jesus. That's your first stop. Not only is faith always tested, but testing works for us, not against us, but also testing rightly used helps us to mature. And that's what the writer sitting here is saying. What trials are received with faith, what those who come, as the trials come and we take the step of faith, it will produce this patience. And yet patience is not inevitably or automatically produces uh, faith through this trial. Why? Because if difficulties are received, not in faith, but unbelief, you know what the result will be? It will produce Through this unbelief, this grumbling, this trial will produce bitterness and discouragement in your life. When a trial comes and you become bitter and discouraged, you know you're not dealing with the trial appropriately. You're dealing with it with unbelief. You've got a problem. That means your faith is not grounded in the word of God like you think it is. If you're bitter and discouraged about your trial and tribulations going on in your life, you're not grounded in the scriptures. Because it's unbelief. Because if it is truly a belief of faith in Jesus Christ, you would not be bitter and discouraged. You will have joy. You'll be strengthened. Your relationship with God would be so much deeper than it was before the trial. That is how you know where you're at. In your walk with God. Romans 5 verses 3 through 5 says it right here. James talking about exhorting us to count it all joy. Why? Because but we also glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Oh, go back and read and ponder on today Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, because that says it very clearly. Where does your hope come from through this trial? By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Why? Because it builds tribulation, trials, will produce perseverance, that endurance, that endurance will then character, will change you who you are. That character will give you a hope in God and God alone. And that will then be produced and poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. It's not a question if, it's, it's a guarantee. If you let him do the work. It is a courageous perseverance in face of suffering and difficulty We must put our hope in him. Understand, immature people are always impatient. Hello. (laughs) Immature people are always impatient. Mature people are patient and persistent. How does that measure? Impatient and unbelief usually go together. Faith and patience go together. And God wants to make us patient. Make us patient because that is the very key to every other blessing that comes your way. When you're as a parent and you understand the scripture and what is applied by faith in your life, you will understand why you need to teach that to your children. Because a little child who does not learn patience will learn nothing else. 
They will not grow and mature in understanding of anything else. It is that vital that we teach our children patience. <laughs> and it will test your patience as well. When the believer learns to wait upon the Lord, to be still and know that he's God, then God can do great things for you. You must learn. Because the only way the Lord can develop patience and character in our lives is through trials. I wish there was another way. But there isn't. This endurance, this patience, is not come about by reading another book. Not even the Bible. Did you hear me? You're, it's that patience, that endurance is not going to come about just because you read. Or listen to another sermon. Or go to another conference. Faith, go to another faith conference and this conference and that guy. <laughs> That's not going to help you. It's only going to be produced, not even through prayer. It's only going to be produced by trials. Which is a problem. Because none of us like trials. So what do we do? We avoid any conflict or trials at anything at all costs. Like I said, you don't go looking for them. You don't go produce them. You take one at a time that God gives you knowing that you can handle it and gives you that to just one by one just to handle it. And you know, sometimes we have many trials and you think, okay, I've had enough. But God knows what's best. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature, that's the word mature, and complete, lacking nothing. God cannot build your patience or develop your character without you and I's cooperation. You must cooperate with God while he is doing a work in your life. When you refute and push back and deny and don't want to, that causes right. If we resist him, then he ch chastens us into submission. He brings us to a point where we will finally listen and obey. So that third imperative, let, we must let it happen. Let patience have its perfect work. Let the trial work it through. Go to God and allow him to work you through this to help you build. And you must submit to him. Then he can accomplish his work. Like I said, Lord, let me be obedient. Let me be willing to do whatever it is. Let me not hold back because I want to learn this trial now and I want to learn it really well because I don't want to have to go back through this and or chasing me into submission to be able to do this work. Because God will never be satisfied until you are complete. Hello. <laughs> Our God is a faithful God. He's not going to let up. He's going to bring about a completion in our lives, a maturity in our lives. It comes slowly, 
The work of endurance, the work of patience and endurance comes slowly and must be allowed to have full bloom in its due season. What is a patient endurance? What is the mark of a person with patient endurance? Maturity. Complete. Lacking nothing. One who waits on God. One who becomes a mature Christian. God's goal for our lives is maturity. For you to grow up. Can you imagine if it was, would be a tragedy if children remained babies, little babies, their whole life? I've met a few 34-year-old men who are babies. They haven't grown up. They haven't put away childish things. They're not willing to grow. They're not willing to cooperate with God. But we enjoy, don't we? We enjoy watching these babies grow and mature. Do we not love to watch that happen? And even as a parent, and we watch our babies grow, what comes along with that is a maturity that brings dangers as we watch them grow. Children must be tested. Children must be allowed to go through trials. Not that you're throwing them out in the middle of the street and say, see how you're going to do, kid, and if we can dodge the cars. I'm not talking about that. But sometimes we so protective of our children, of any conflict, of any issues, or any problems, because we're trying to keep them safe, that we do not allow them to mature and grow. They stay as babies and is a very unhealthy for that child. I always have a little saying, <laughs> uh, mother to the rescue. It's like, you know, a little boy will be in something like, there goes mother to the mother to the rescue. Let the boy, it was fine. He's not, you, no, there's no harm going to happen. Yeah, he might stub his toe. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, a little skin, a little scratch. I mean, that's, a, that's like a war room for a boy. It's like, wow, look at my booboo. This is great, man. I was battling the, 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 the dinosaurs when this happened. You know, they, let them go through some trials and tribulations. It helps them to grow. God wants little children to become young men. Young men need to grow to become fathers. We see that outline in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. There is a growth and maturity that needs to happen. Men will not become fathers, faithful fathers, if they're not moved past the young man stage, which is very selfish. And if the young men are not there, they're still babies because they're still playing around and want everything taken care of them and they're still sucking on milk. No meat, no growth, no understanding, no challenges. They're all just living back and just, just I don't want to deal with anything. Drives me nuts. Because it's not healthy for that man not to grow. It's not healthy for that young lady not to grow. I'll end with this. Paul outlines three works that are involved in com to complete a Christian life. You'll see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. First, there is the work of God does for us. There is a work of God that does for us, and that is salvation. 
Jesus Christ completed this work on the cross. If we trust him, he will save us. That is a work he does through you, or for us. The second is there is a work that God does in us. That is what is on my favorite coffee cup, for we are his workmanship. And it reminds me every day I have my coffee cup. I am his workmanship. He's working in me. It's, this work is known as sanctification and is to be conformed to the image of his son. We see that in Romans 8.29. So God does in us a workmanship. He's working on you. And then the third piece, the third work, is that what God does is through us. And that is his service. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And that is the emphasis of James' book is in this epistle, is to talk about that perspective of the, of the, of the coin of your life. is about now you, God has saved you, God is doing a work in you, and as you mature, you're going to start doing something for God. That is the good works that he wants you to do. You're not saved by it. That is what you're maturing to do. Paul talks about grace and peace. He only talks about how you're saved and that perspective of God's grace and even allowing to do anything through your life and to work in your life. James is going to give heavy on us the rest of this, this letter all about going and working through us for his service to create in Christ Jesus a good work for us. We must work in us before he can work through us. So allow him to do this work because the sooner you do this work and mature, the mightier things that God can do in and through your life for to reach the loss and encourage those in the faith. My brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming back soon. And faith is made pure only through when we're facing the fiery trials. And when we face these fiery trials, it will burn away the dross in your life. The junk that, the, when things heat up in your life and it's just this junk in, this, the, in, the, in, the, in the metals comes to the top and it's to be skimmed off. It's only through the heat of trials, fiery trials, that that dross, impurities, is brought up. Don't fight against it. You must take a step forward and allow him to do it.